This is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation. Hello, I'm Phil McKinney, and welcome to this week's Killer Innovations. We're going to pick up where we've left off the last couple of weeks, where I've been sharing kind of my background and my experience in running brainstorming sessions. Um... You know, three weeks ago, we talked about predicting the future and the importance of creating an innovation timeline related to uh, setting a vision for your organization. Once you've done that timeline, the next up is you got to go out and see what other people are doing in that space. If you think it's interesting, make sure you understand and have the context of that background. And then last week, we talked about kind of the, the six golden rules for brainstorming. The brainstorming is kind of a generic term I use really to uh, share and discuss or put it in context of the, the whole process of generating ideas. And this week, we're going to talk specifically about how to run those sessions. How do you get kind of the best and brightest people to come around the table and really think deeply and generate what I would call these killer ideas, the ideas that are really going to be transformative. Now, if you recall from last week, we talked about the six golden rules. One of the six golden rules was about doing homework, assigning homework, getting people to kind of get up out of their chair before you actually ever run a brainstorming session and get out there and you know do your own investigation. Talk to real customers. Don't sit back and think you know who your customer is or what their needs are. If you've got that idea running around in your head, don't fall into that trap thinking that you are that best example of your customer. So first up, when you're running a brainstorming session, and you've got everybody into the room, the first step is you want everybody to kind of share those observations. You want to get everything out of that, you know, the, the learnings that they've had being out into the field. So once everybody's settled in, it's really time to be shared with they, what you've discovered. Now, generally, I give a quick recap of our area of focus. What is it we're focusing on? Is it about a specific customer segment? Is it a specific problem space? Kind of bring everybody back around that context. And I start off by asking the participants to share their own list of assumptions and rules that define how the industry and organization operates. This is kind of everything that kind of holds everybody back. And the reason I do this is, is it kind of gets that out onto the, uh, onto the table and it doesn't, it, it, you get rid of it being kind of an anchor. People in the back of their mind saying, oh, I'm not going to suggest that idea because my organization or my boss is never going to allow me to go do that. So, by getting those assumptions and rules on the table, you can respond to those and say, now hold on here a second, those, that, that's not the case anymore, we have to ignore those things. You wanna get it out so it's not rattling around in people's minds. And it's also, you know, it is important that you acknowledge them, but you gotta get them out. Um, then I'll ask the participants about their experience and to share what they observed. Um, you know, don't go in a circle, don't go, you know, per, don't, don't go clockwise or counterclockwise. You want to make it more of a conversation. If you start going around the table in a circle, people then are kind of waiting and expecting that this is going to be a pretty methodical. You want kind of a, of a mosh pit. You want everybody just kind of throwing ideas out there on the table and seeing where it goes from there. And that's important. Um, you know, I'll always ask who wants to talk first, and after that, I'll look at facial expressions, and I'll call people out. I'll say, hey, you know, Steve, you know, what do you think about that? Or, hey, you know, Sally, did you see the same thing when you were out there? Um, 
If there's someone who's excited to share because the observations naturally build on the ones they've just heard, then you want to bring those people in. So if Tom says A and Sally has A plus with something she wants to add to that where she saw something, you kind of want to get that encouraging where you kind of get that build up. And again, this is only sharing. This is not the idea generation. This is just sharing the observations. What did you see? Now, as each person talks about what they've observed, now, the one thing I like is, is artifacts. Did they collect images? Did they snap a picture with their phone? Did they grab a video of an interview or a discussion uh, with a potential client? Did they bring back physical artifact documents, um, et cetera? Now, I really like artifacts that are physical instead of digital, things that you can print out, stick on the wall. Because um, it, it, what I see and what I've experienced is, is that really drives inspiration. You can look up. You're seeing that image of the face of that customer. You're seeing an image of, of the problem that they have that you're trying to solve. And you use that as kind of that ongoing inspiration. The, the guidance here is, is do not fall back on PowerPoint. In fact, I don't allow PowerPoint presentations. This is purely show me a photograph, sketch something on a flip chart. We're not sitting here going through bullet items of what was found. Um, and for me, again, I really like those physical artifacts. This is not, again, about generating ideas. It's simply about sharing what they've observed. Now, remember, the answers to the questions are not themselves the ideas. This is really just giving context. So we understand who the customer is. We understand what the problem space is. We understand maybe what alternatives the customer has in front of them to, uh, to really be able to, uh, to do, uh, you know, to, to solve the problem. Now, when I was writing my book, uh, my publisher, Hyperion, which at the time was owned by Disney, um, actually had me come in and run a, work, uh, a, a workshop for them, a brainstorming session. It was a half-day, four-hour brainstorming session for them. Um, and keep in mind, this was in you know early 2010, I'm guessing. Yeah, it's about right. Or maybe later 2010, I guess, uh, when I put it in context. Um, and I always joked with the... Uh, the publisher at uh, Hyperion that the reason they uh, printed my book or published my book was because they got free uh, innovation consulting as part of it. But keep in mind what was going on in 2010-2011 was pretty dramatic for the publishing industry. Things were in, in chaos. And so part of the homework assignment that I assigned to, Hi to the Hyperion team, the entire editing team, the publishers, um, people in, in charge of each of the sections, whether it be fiction, nonfiction, business, um, you know, we, we challenge them to really think about what is it my customer does not like about buying my product. Um, and it forced everybody at Hyperion to, to basically spend a day out of the office going down to things like the uh, Barnes & Noble or the Borders store. Borders was still around at that time. And actually talk to customers, customers who were buying books, customers who were browsing books. Um, and this was really this whole transition of where you know, 2010, 2011, um, when the whole thing flipped, where people bought, started that flip of buying more digital books than hardcover books. And uh, it was a, it was kind of uh, eye-opening from the standpoint um, on the whole issue of, uh, uh, you know, of, of actually going out and talking to customers and why were customers more interested in digital books than hardcover books. And you still had those fans who were really big on uh, the hardcover books. And what does that really mean? And they came back and we spent probably, of well, the four hour workshop, we probably spent an hour, hour and 20 minutes 
having everybody just walk through those observations. And we put them on post-it notes, and we put them on one flip chart. And then we just kind of set it to the side, because those were the observations. That was the catalyst for now, what was the new ideas? How was this going to transform Hyperion in their thinking about what was the books of the future going to look like, and how was Hyperion going to be, uh, be positioned um, uh, in the best possible way? And, uh, you know, as part of that exercise also is getting rid of what are all the rules and assumptions. And in the case of the book publishing industry, there's a lot of kind of assumptions historical about what's the role of the author? What's the role of a book agent? What's the role of a publisher? What's the role of an editor? Distributors, um, retail book outlets, you know, digital book outlets like Amazon. You know, what are each of their roles? How do you interact with them? What is that whole process? from the standpoint of working with them. And therefore, we just kind of get into this, you know, you get into this kind of the way it's always been done. And in this case, with uh, this workshop that I did for Hyperion, it really was about dismantling those assumptions and really taking a hard look at what is it to, what does it really take to uh, basically uh, disrupt the, uh, the entire book publishing industry. Now, Hyperion had the additional challenge in the fact that it wasn't really truly independent. It was a div subsidiary division of, uh, of uh, Buena Vista Publishing, um, which was owned by Disney. So this big hierarchy of a company that had other areas that uh, it was responsible for. So uh, uh, when you start throwing out assumptions, people tend to kind of hold back. But this was an opportunity for you to kind of suspend disbelief, take a look at whatever is possible out there, and really try to transform uh, the business overall. And, it's, and as a result, um, there was some pretty interesting topics and ideas, and we're going to talk more about those as we go in. Because coming up next, we're going to talk about ideation, what's the actual process of generating the ideas. Then we're going to talk about how do you go through the whole process and pulling all that together. And then ultimately, how do we get into ranking? How do we rank ideas? Um, and that's critical from the standpoint of knowing which are the best top ideas that you're going to go work on. Uh, because needless to say, you're going to come up with hundreds of ideas. But the ultimate result is the fact that you're going to um, have to rank those ideas. So we come right back. We're going to pick up talking about idea generation. You're listening to Kill Innovations on the BizTalk Radio Network. Talk Radio. This is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation. Welcome back to Killer Innovations. We're talking today about the actual process of running brainstorming sessions. Uh, let's pick it up where we left off. Ideation, or what I call ideation, is the actual process of generating ideas. Now, in some cases, you may already have an idea in your head that you want to go off and actually turn into a real product or a real service. Or... You may want to get together with even friends, or if you're part of an organization, you know those people in your in your organization that 
you want to get their input on or generate even more or better ideas. So in the case of the ideation phase, once everybody has shared kind of their input, their observations, which we talked about in the last segment, uh, you get, start setting people down to start really getting into the active process of generating ideas. What I do first is I start by assigning an idea quota. An idea quota is a number that kind of is a target for an individual of how many ideas they need to generate. Why do I do an idea quota? What I've found with an idea quota is the fact that without it, people will tend to come up with some, you know, eight, ten ideas pretty easily. The next three or four ideas kind of start petering out, and by then they're done, and then they give it up. Versus if you tell somebody your idea quota is, is you're going to generate 50, 60, 75 ideas in the next 40 minutes. And you can't stop until you get to that idea quota. And what you find is, is the first third, whatever the quota is, let's say it's, you know, 60. So the first 20 ideas, pretty simple. The next 20 ideas are kind of hard. Those last 20 ideas, really hard. Now, the benefit of that is, is what you find that in those last 20, that tends to be the source of some of your best ideas. Now, as you're going through this process, is, is you got to keep the energy high. You, you can't let the minds wander. Um, you don't let people procrastinate, sitting around until waiting till the very end to try to crank them out. You need to keep the, the idea going. And the idea stage is really free form. I typically give out post-it notes and just have people just kind of just crank out the ideas. Now, the key point here is, is don't be critical of ideas at this stage in the process. If you're facilitating and you're walking around and you're seeing people or you're, you're trying to encourage people to keep going to get the idea quota, you know, be, be cautious of trying to say, you know, oh, well, Sally over there already had that idea or um, no, that's, that probably is not going to work in our context. You do not want to filter. I'm a firm believer in the concept I call stupid wins. And in fact, I did a podcast, you know, years and years ago around stupid wins. You can go back and search for it over at killerinnovations.com. That turned out to be pretty popular because what you find is, is that those things that look really stupid can really be the nuggets of some really great ideas. Now, brilliance and the ideas often deceptively simple. And by discarding ideas that you sometimes seem too simple, you put yourself at a disadvantage. So you know something looks stupid or simple or it seems obvious somebody else would do it. Keep hold of those ideas. Don't filter, capture it all. The other is is just keep, you know, just keep cranking. Try as get as many of those ideas out, fill up those post-it notes, just write them one at a time, one on each post-it note. And if you get stuck, try looking at the ideas you've already generated and seeing if any of them can be broken down into smaller components. And also try weird random combinations. Take two post-it notes that you've got, set them next to each other, and reading the two together, what would happen if you put those two together? What would generate the third idea? That's another way um, to uh, use combining as another way to kind of spark um, this, this, uh, this, this whole process of generating the ideas. And if you're stuck, you might ask what would happen if you did the opposite. So take, take an idea. And it, if you were going to solve a problem with A, what happens if you turn it 180 degrees and you did the, actually the exact opposite? So now you've just got everybody cranking out. They've hit their idea quota. Now what do you do? Next is what we call sharing and grouping. This is taking all of those ideas and really allowing people to get up and share them. So this is letting people get up to a big board, whiteboard, big wall, piece of window glass, 
and just literally start putting post-it notes up. And let everybody maybe have 10 to 15 seconds to kind of describe it. This is not about someone giving a PhD thesis. This is about just quickly getting the ideas up. And you want to get through this process quickly. Um, so you, and then so you start the process to group the post-its together. So if two, three people came up with the same, same idea, put those three post-its together. Um, if it's maybe not identical, but it's a, kind of in a similar theme, place it geographically close. Not maybe right on top of it, but kind of close to say this is kind of a grouping. And then um, once everybody has it up and they have it posted, and everyone's kind of gone through this grouping exercise, um, then ask the person who's probably most passionate about a group to name it. Come up with a one, two, maximum three-word name for that group. Because that's what's going to be the descriptor that you're going to use going forward as we go into uh, the ranking exercise or ranking process, which is next. Get rid of any duplicate ideas at this point. Stack them up on top of each other. Or just remove them so you just have one posted for the idea. Um, and in some cases, I'll run these, the ideation session over multiple days. Because what I have found is the first day I'll generate some ideas and maybe around one core question. And then letting people think about it overnight and coming back with maybe uh, a different question but kind of in the same theme area. People have had a chance to percolate it overnight. They've had a chance to actually think about it. They've been, you know, they got into the shower. And what you find is that subconscious really uh, can open up some... Uh, some new and some really great and interesting ideas. There's an example of Elias Howe who actually invented uh, the, the whole process of sewing machines and how sewing machines sew um, and the needle design. And it was a process of where he worked on it, worked on it, worked on it, went to bed, his subconscious worked on it, and overnight he had a, a dream of being attacked by natives with spears. And he looked at the tip of the spears in this dream and it gave him the idea for what we now know is the the fundamental process of the needles and sewing and what's in sewing machines today. So let that subconscious work. Um, and so in this case, now you've taken all of your ideas, now you've grouped them all together, and you've named those groups, whether you do it as a one-day process or you do it as a two-day process. So now you've got this all grouped together. Next up, we're going to talk about how do you rank them, because ranking is critical from the standpoint that you've got to put them um, and you got to be able to identify what are the top two or three ideas. So, and don't worry, I know you're all probably trying to take frantic notes as I'm going through this description. We're going to create a, a, a document, a PDF that you can download over at the site. It's killerinnovations.com slash brainstorm. And uh, we'll make this in all the details of how to actually run the workshop available um, in that, uh, that effort. So, uh, go over to killerinnovations.com slash brainstorm, and uh, you can download the uh, the PDF document. Next up, we're going to talk about the ranking system and how uh, the ranking works and how do you get to those uh, best ideas. So stay right there. We're going to be right back. This is Phil McKinney on Killer Innovations on the BizTalk Radio Network.
News Talk Radio. This is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation. Welcome back to Killer Innovations. We're going to continue on where we left off, talking about how do you run ideation sessions? How do you run the process of getting a group of people together to generate ideas? So in the segment one, we talked about uh, the whole process of homework and people getting out of their chair and doing observations before you actually bring them in to run a session. The last segment uh, of the show, we talked about the whole process of ideation. How do you actually generate those ideas? In this segment, we're going to talk about ranking or voting or prioritizing the ideas. Now, typically in a group of eight to 10 people um, in a 45 minute to one hour session, um, you're going to generate upwards of a couple hundred ideas. Um, what do you do with a couple hundred ideas? In the past, you would type them all up, send them out as an email, and then nothing happens. This next step is probably the most critical step when it comes to running a brainstorming session. Now, before we start talking about ranking, I want you to think about group dynamics for a second. Now, ideally, you have somewhere between maybe five or ten people participating in the group. Now, these people are drawn from all over your company or your organization, including but not limited to engineering, marketing, even maybe some executives. Some of them may be senior enough to be perceived as, quote, the boss. Now, all of them have their own biases and filters for sorting out ideas, right? It's either pet projects or their history or something that they're familiar with. Um, you know. And so the question is, is, how do you bring those in? Now, as a result, what I find that works best is passing out ballots and having the group members score ideas and hand in their votes privately. Don't ask for a show of hands and don't take people's votes verbally. You want your participants to feel empowered to have an opinion, not just echo the boss's opinion. Now, don't put them in a situation where they have to feel foolish for disagreeing either with their peers. Now, the ranking system is, is relatively simple. When I was CTO at Hewlett Packard, we had to deal with three to 4,000 ideas a year that came floating in. And there's no way we could have a really, you know, exhaustive kind of ranking process. And just out of experience, we boiled it down really to five questions that we used. And it proved to be pretty accurate at identifying those ideas that are going to have the biggest impact, be transformative, be game-changing. So I used the five, this five-question scoring system to really sort out these best ideas. Now, it's important that you make the commitment and follow through on taking the two or three best ideas and developing them into proposal. Just don't do the ranking and then let it die. Commit to the team that you're going to take top two or three ideas and you're actually going to do something with it. Now, bear in mind that the questions I use are aimed at business. If you're working the killer questions in other areas, such as nonprofits, education, etc., you need to come up with your own criteria. And, uh, now, if you, re if you do this... And if you follow this five, the five questions I propose, keep in mind that the first three ranking questions are about the quality of the idea. So how good is this idea? How transformative is this idea going to be? The fourth and fifth question are about whether you see a path to making the idea in question happen. 
and whether it's really a meaningful endeavor for the organization. Now, one final note, depending on the size of your workshop, you may end up with more ideas than you, know, than you can individually rank. Um, in this case, some companies have chosen to narrow their options with a pre-ranking system. Now, if you'd like to do this as well, try using what I call the dot method. Give everyone on a team a set of those you know, little colored sticky um, notes, dots. Each person then places dots next to the ideas they believe are the ones that best meet the objective. Now, if a person really likes an idea, they can put all of their dots on a single idea, or they can spread them around. Now, using, these, using a dot method, you can help narrow the field to ideas to be further ranked to be a, a more uh, manageable number. Particularly if you're doing like, you know, two days, you know, 16 hours, you're going to have thousands and thousands of ideas. So that's kind of quick pre-ranking. So what are the five questions? Score your answers. On a score of zero to five, zero means the idea doesn't have this. Five means, oh my gosh, it's off the chart. Question one, does this idea improve the customer's experience or expectation? Does this idea really solve a problem? Will you give your customer something they need and want? Will it solve their problem in some kind of a unique or different way? Question two, does this idea fundamentally change how you position competitively in the market? Will this idea put you ahead of your competition? Will it disrupt the market's ideas about your organization and how you're looked by competition? Third question, does this idea radically change the economic structure of the industry? Will this idea disrupt the way value is created and monetized? So again, customer experience, competitive positioning, economic structure, the first three questions. Now, if you can't answer yes to one of those three, then what the heck are you doing? Why are you... Why are you working on this idea? So assuming you get a really strong yes on one of them, if you get a strong yes on two or three, then oh my gosh, you've got an idea that's just going to rock. Next, you need to take a look at can you do something with it? So question number four, do you have a contribution to make? Do you have any experience or expertise to bring to the problem? Right? Look, when I was CTO at Hewlett Packard, you know, we had $4 billion in R&D spend. We had 47,000 engineers. We could go do lots of things. We could go do oil exploration if we wanted to. We had no contribution to make in that space. So do you have a contribution? Something that leverages core, your, your, your core positioning in your marketplace, core technology, core expertise. And then the last question, will this idea generate sufficient margin? Now, if you notice, this is the last question, not the first question. And in fact, I don't even look for a spreadsheet or any kind of financials. Why? Because a lot of organizations want to focus on ROI, that return on investment. Um, but the fact is, is I, as good as anybody else, I can make a spreadsheet say anything. Now, in reality, if you had a strong yes in the first three questions and customer experience, uh, competitive positioning and the economics of the industry. If you had a strong yes in one of those, odds are I think you're going to find a business model that's going to be sufficient. So I'm less focused on the ROI as I am just thinking about what the business model is around it. So when we talk about generate sufficient margin, it is really around um, what's the business model? How are customers willing to pay for this? Are they willing to pay for this? Do they do value payments? Or do they view it purely as a cost savings? How do they think about it? How are you going to do this? Now, what I have found is you score each one of those 0 to 5. Maximum score from any one individual is 25 points. Minimum of 8 people, assuming you're voting anonymously. My experience is, is the top 2 to 3% ideas will stand out on top. 
there's a huge gap, and then there's the rest of the ideas. And so in this case, now you've got the top two or three ideas. Do not make the mistake of saying, okay, we're done, because you're not done. You just identified the top two or three ideas. And those are really the deliverables to the executives you have to answer to. Right? Your commitment was to run a brainstorming session to come up with ideas. You now have the top two or three ideas. Now you have to convince management to go do something with it. Or if you're a startup, do something with those ideas. Go out and test them. Go out and talk to customers. Go out and do some validation. I'm a big believer of stage gate uh, management, which is give a little bit of money, go out and try it. If it comes back and you get really positive feedback from it, then put a little bit more money in, maybe you know, do a mock-up of it. Go out and test that, bring that back. If that seems positive, then put a little bit more money in. So stage gating is very modeled after what venture capitalists do. Give you a little bit of money, get some success, I'll give you more money. Um, but the key is is not not just to sit there and wait for those two to three, you know, do nothing with those two to three. So of this process I just gave you, why is this better than the historical ways of doing brainstorming? Well, one is it's not tied to the total number of ideas. The old model of brainstorming was was to brag on I got 300 ideas. This is focusing on identifying the two or three best ideas. And then what you'll find is, is this will align the team. The energy level coming out of a brainstorming session when a team says these are the two ideas that we promote to management. And it really eliminates the risk of beauty contests, which a lot of brainstorming sessions turn into, where it's a whole long list and the executives just pick their favorite project. Um, and and it's, so through this process, it's not about numbers. It's not about the beauty contest. It's about selecting the best two or three ideas and to get then management to align and actually go do something. So sometime in the future, in a future broadcast, we'll talk about how do you take these and, and actually drive execution. Now remember, I've got, I've, I'll put all this into a document on exactly how I run it, including timelines, et cetera, in a PDF. And you can get it over at killerinnovations.com slash brainstorming. And uh, it'd be free. You can download it and use it. So stay tuned. When we come back, we are going to talk about the killer question of the week. Um, and it's going to tie right into what we've been talking about with regards to how do you actually execute now that you've got these great ideas. So. Stay right where you're at. When we come back, we'll pick up where we left off. This is Phil McKinney, and you're listening to Killer Innovations on the BizTalk Radio Network. BizTalk Radio. is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation. Welcome to Killer Innovations. My name's Phil McKinney. I'm your host. This week's killer question is one that ties into how do you select which project to work on? Now, Killer questions are those questions that cause you to look at problems in a unique and different way. 
You don't want to stop at the obvious answer. The part of the part, the real purpose of a killer question is to cause you to look at something and go beyond that first obvious answer and look at the, at the non-obvious answers. Because face it, your competition stops at the first obvious answer and that's what they execute. If you want to be different, if you want to be unique, if you want to have a really true game-changing innovation, you got to get beyond the obvious. So this week's killer question is, is what are the criteria to select research and development projects? Now, you can change the word research and development to say, what's the criteria to select new products? What's the criteria to select new services? What's the criteria to do anything within your organization? Now, the question is, is what is the criteria that, that allows you to, or gives you the, the confidence to go after an idea that's worth pursuing? Now, we all have our own set of selection criteria, and the one that most organizations look for is profits. However, selecting a course of action based solely on ROI can be limiting. And we just talked about this in the previous segment, using the five questions to do one level of, uh, of uh, ranking. Now, if you're doing something really innovative, how on earth can you determine what the margins will be at the early stage products, right? You know, this gets into an ROI analysis and why I do not believe in ROI analysis in the early stages of uh, idea selection. Because look, if it's something truly transformative, truly innovative, um, you know, the, the fact is, is that you're not even going to know. It's purely a guess as to what your revenue number is and what your margin is going to be. But the challenge is, particularly in larger organizations, is, is they will typically filter out new ideas based solely on whether they meet some form of financial projections. You know, then you're going to miss some really great, perhaps groundbreaking concepts. Um, as mentioned in the early segment, when you get to the ranking activity, ROI should not be the first filter. In fact, that's why I make it the fifth question. Get through, you know, does this change the customer's experience and expectation? Is this going to change the competitive positioning? Is this going to change the economic structure of the industry? Do I have a contribution to make? And once you answer that, those questions, then and only then do you think about, is this going to generate sufficient margin? Now, we can probably all tell stories in over, you know, over a few drinks about, you know, some of the stupid stuff, our, our, you know, our leadership has done in respect of to each of our own organizations about how they make their selection process. But, you know, I'm going to use HP as an example, but in this case, HP having done the right thing. When HP first got into printers, it seemed like really a tiny, not a particularly interesting category. Um, you know, dot matrix printers were going really well. Laser printers were really, really expensive. Um, but now it's one of the highest profit producing businesses. So in the early days, if you did an ROI analysis, HP should never have gotten into printers. There was no path. And it took, you know, you know, years and years and years and years, years to build it up. But now, again, it's one of the highest profit producing businesses. Um, in HP. Now, if they'd said, nah, not doing it, it's too small to be worth it, it would have been a catastrophic mistake. The printer division isn't the, isn't the first example of where HP has made the tough call. Back in 1968, Bill Hewlett wanted to get HP into calculators. Now, he took the idea to the marketing team and they said, don't do it. No one's going to pay that much for a very expensive calculator. In this case, it was going to be $300 in 1968 dollars. And Bill said, I don't care. 
I personally want one, and he made the decision to create it. And that product was the catalyst for transforming HP from a test and management company into a computer company and actually established HP's uh, retail distribution. Uh, this was the first product that was aimed at consumers for HP, and that became the basis now where HP controls about 11% of all consumer electronic retail shelf space around the world. Now, I had the personal experience that uh, the, the ROIs can be quite misleading. You know, every we've all been part of the whole process of of coming up with uh, or being part of management's decisions not to do an idea because of the uh, uh, piece of some financial analysis, right? Now, I, I use the HP printer example as a positive. Nowadays in HP, or at least when I was still there, um, it could actually be viewed as a negative, right? There used to be um, a metric that was used to say HP was only interested in ideas that were generating at least a minimum of a billion dollars, and it had a uh, gross margin equivalent to printers and ink. Well, how many ideas can you come up with that is a minimum of a billion dollars that's generating the same margin as printers and ink? Um, at HP. And unless it hit that bar, the ideas had got no traction. Now, that's actually changed, but it's still a big challenge. So, the sparking points or the questions you really should think about is what is the one key criteria that you must meet for a project to get approved? Think about it from your leader's perspective. Now, what would happen if you ignored this criteria in the evaluation process? So, just ignored it. Would you be, would you make a different set of decisions? And what's the criteria used by others either inside your industry or outside your industry. Go see how other people make decisions and see if there's a better way to do it than what you're doing today. So, again, think about how you just turn everything on its head. How do you, how do you create ideas? How do you rank them or select them? And then how do you get through the, the knot hole of the approval process with your organization? And don't be afraid to break a little glass. Break some rules. Get out there. Take some risk. Believe me, I've broken a lot of glass over my career, and I can tell you it's a lot better on the other side, both from self-satisfaction, and in some cases, and in fact, in my case, every case I've done it, it has proven out to be really uh, transformative to the organization. So, uh, thank you for listening. Uh, we're still in our temporary situations with the new studios under construction. We'll be in the new studio here hopefully by the end of the month. Uh, so I appreciate you uh, hanging in there. If you have any questions, drop me an email at phil at killerinnovations.com. Also, don't forget, we're going to make the PDF of all the information we share today. So it's killerinnovations.com slash brainstorming. And with that, we'll talk to you next week. And don't forget, don't let the corporate antibodies keep you down. Keep on innovating. This is Phil McKinney at Killer Innovations on the BizTalk Radio Network. The opinions you hear on Biz Talk Radio are those of the hosts, callers, and guests, and do not necessarily reflect those of this station, Biz Talk Radio, its management, or advertisers. The information on Biz Talk Radio does not constitute a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any product or service. If you have any questions about Biz Talk Radio, contact us at 817-274-1609 or at biztalkradio.com. Biz Talk Radio. 